how do we trust that that data from the installation part of the project is trustable? How you do it is basically if you don't know specifically what kind of machines they run, then you will model transport using market average transportation means. Then if you have contracts, for example, that I only allow people to supply me who use Euro 5, Euro 6 trucks, then you can actually choose that um, that emission class of trucks, but you still don't know who is the actual transporter. Uh, but you take that in um, as an average uh, still, but you know it's more precise average because it's a smaller subsegment uh, of different a specific type of equipment and then finally if you know the exact type of equipment and the exact emission class you can use that and the last event is if you actually know the specific fuel consumption and the type of fuel that was consumed you can model it with fuel so you have four options which all come from you know more precise level to the less precise level welcome to the urbanista where we discuss the water management challenges of nordic cities from safe drinking water distribution and stormwater collection to building sustainable urban living environments. Here is your host, Delphine Vassalo. Hey, welcome back, urbanistas. Thank you for placing play. As more pressure comes to the construction industry to become more sustainable, well, the need for data and overall transparency in that data is increasing. It's super important to have this transparency. Uh, but from where this data comes, who verifies the data that is accurate, that is true? What is the scientific basis that supports all this? That you have the claim that you can safely say that your product is complying with all the sustainability regulations? Well, today, Today's guest at the Urbanista, well, is someone who is an expert and that can explain this and many more things. So who are you and what do you do? Yeah, hi. So uh, my name is Panu Pasanen. I'm the CEO and founder of OneClick LCA. We do lifecycle assessment software for construction and manufacturing industries. And um, lifecycle assessment software uh, uses a science-based methodology to quantify environmental impacts of either products or projects using, uh, you know, products and doing earth movements and other uh, types of activities to achieve the project outcomes uh, using science-based and standards-based methodologies, uh, often with third-party verification of the results. And uh, we do that worldwide. So one-click LCA is used in over 155 countries, and uh, we are a Finnish company, about 20 years old, um, world leader in the LCA space um, in our domains. So it's so nice to have you today, uh, Pano. So you were mentioning already that all these elements are the ones that you put inside of your platform, your your, your software. So can you just please, for the sake of uh, uh, yeah, understanding better, how exactly are you processing all this data, which what we mentioned at, at the beginning? So from where all this data comes that fits into your into your platform into your uh, uh, software? Yes, of course. So um, take um, two examples, like uh, one, um, like a very simple, let's say, pipe network renovation project. So suppose you have a road that you need to dig open. So um, you will bring in, you know, some machinery to cut open the asphalt, to peel it off. Um, they will consume uh, fuels. Um, then you will have some diggers digging off the soil and you will pull out the existing pipes. Then you will undoubtedly put some 
layers of whatever materials to stabilize the soil underneath or uh, achieve the right exact shape. Let's say you put in sand and then you mm-hmm. put in the pipes and insulation and you connect everything and you recover it all. So you have two kinds of activities going, well, three kinds of activities in here. You have fuel using machines and those machines are in one click LCS case, you can measure them based on the direct fuel consumption if that's measured or machine hours if you don't. Very common that you don't have the you know, precise readings because it may be subcontracted work and you may not get all the information uh, very precisely. Second, uh, then uh, you have the materials what you put in there. So if you put in there sand, sand is not, let's say, a product that you go and buy in the market. So for mm-hmm. sand and similar uh, materials, you would use um, um, emission factors from uh, one-click LCS database. And uh, then uh, finally, for the actual products, for example, pipes, uh, then you would use, if available, manufacturer and product-specific environmental product declarations, which contain the environmental impacts data. But if you don't have that data for a specific manufacturer or specific product you work with, then you would use uh, generic data, which is the closest proxy of a similar type of a product, uh, which doesn't represent the exact improvements and, you know, that the given manufacturer you work work with uh, has put into their products. So uh, that's the example of projects. And there you end up with a figure that tells you, this is how much comes from the you know machinery, this is how much comes from my products, and also what comes from end-of-life processing of the materials that you had in the project that you have to you know take away for uh, disposal or treatment. Then so if you look the, at... Yeah. yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, so on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, then if you have a product, let's take a simple, you know, PEX pipe, right? So uh, for PEX pipe, there's going to be granules coming from basic chemical manufacturer, which come to the uh, factory where the pipe is made, and uh, heat is applied, and uh, extrusion process follows. Some kind of gases and treatments may be applied uh, as well, and the finished products are cut and packaged, and all of those activities they also um, it can be represented as environmental data, and uh, that data comes again from a uh, one-click LCS database. So we have a uh, huge database, um, over 150,000 LCA datasets, uh, from which the user can choose what actually is happening, and uh, they can re- model the environmental impacts precisely. And uh, because for the products, the output is typically environmental product declaration, uh, and that requires third-party verification and publishing. Um, the results would also be third-party verified and published before being used, um, and that increases the confidence. Basically, you can have as a specifier or buyer of those products. So if we break down this, because you clearly explained three three pieces or three, um, yeah, three buckets of data. The first one is when the work is ongoing, all the machinery, the workers, the, I mean, the transportation, everything that involves the act of installing or building any given project. Um, so those, that data, because you can say the, uh, the trucks that they, we are using to bring the materials or the excavators, uh, are those fuel? I mean, fossil fuel feed or are those electric perhaps? Um, so how, how do you get all that, all that data, depending because each project may be different. So, how do we know exactly the, um, yeah, the data from from all those machines, all those trucks, or is it also these transportation companies need to be 
certify somehow or, or how, how do we get that, uh, um, um, how do we trust that that data from the installation part of the project is uh, uh, trustable? Yeah, so um, how you do it is basically if you don't know specifically what kind of machines they run, then you will model transport using market average transportation means, which is an average of mm -hmm. different uh, age of equipment, for example, and that kind of thing. Um, then if you have contracts, for example, that I only allow people to supply me who use Euro 5, Euro 6 trucks, then you can actually choose that um, that emission class of trucks, but you still don't know who is the actual transporter. And uh, you don't know if they have a bit heavier foot on the pedal than, than the other guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but you take that in um, as an average uh, still, but you know it's more precise average because it's a smaller sub-segment uh, of different a specific type of equipment and then finally if you know the exact type of equipment and the exact emission class you can use that and the last event is if you actually know the specific fuel consumption and the type of fuel that was consumed you can model it with fuel so you have four options which all come from you know more precise level to the less precise level and uh, what level you have to use depends on how material is transport for your um, for your product so you need to have higher quality of data for the higher impact, you know, part of your activity. Mm -hmm. All right. So the second and the second bucket that you were mentioning is the material that is already on the site. Uh, yeah, more often than not, um, when, well, excavators come and dig out whatever is the material, sand, gravel, etc. Sometimes that gravel may be already contaminated because of whatever historical reason so they need to be substituted by new by new sun or new new filling material that new filling material okay we know from where it comes we kind of want to we can measure it or we can quantify it but the one that is already in in the case that we will reuse it i mean not putting new material reuse that same material we don't know what is there down there on the ground so how do we can measure that, or is it again a, a, an estimate, an average? Uh, you mean what do you, where do you go, where do you put that, as in whether it's contaminated or whether it's exactly because yeah, the example is that many times uh, uh, we dig out a lot of material, and if it, there's the need because of pollution or whatever yeah. is to substitute with new material, that new material we know from where, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes. in the case that we reuse the same material. Yes, it yes, was yes. already down there for 40 years. So how do we know what is inside there? And we are going to open, change whatever infrastructure or piping, whatever we need, and yeah. fill it with the same material. So then how does that count? Yeah, so uh, in terms of assessment, um, you need to establish if you actually have to replace it. So uh, if it's going to be contaminated and it has to be processed, uh, then you would be able to model that simply as contamination process for that amount of you know, gravel or soil or whatever sand you may have. And uh, then you need to calculate the substitution with uh, primary or secondary material, but not the same anyway. So um, from LCA point of view, if the materials were there already, they are counted as zero. Uh, so um, you're not incurring impacts for reusing the same material, except for digging them up and putting them back in for the machinery. Uh, and transporting them if you have to transport them further. Uh, but then um, if you do need to process the soil, you are responsible for processing the soil and those impacts will be burdened on your project. 
and uh, it may not be knowable before you open the the road in this case. So, um, but if you didn't know, then you still have to do it. So it's an actual environmental burden, and uh, that would be then measured um, using soil sampling. So it's not knowable ahead. Okay, soil sampling. Okay, so we have the machinery or the the operational part to do the project. We have the actual soil or whatever was already, and then the third uh, piece is well the products that the new products that we are going to put into not to build whatever whatever project or whatever installation are we um are we intended to put there so you were elaborating on, on a few things i guess the one of the things that most people put the emphasis is the material in which from which that pipe or whatever chamber or whatever element is made of Yes, which is in, in, in many cases, um, if there is concrete, if there is uh, aluminum or, or steel, or if it is plastic. So those, each one of those have, of course, different or very different uh, carbon footprints, depending on okay, the, the, the processes that uh, they were used to, to build. Um, in a general level, which one would you say may have less or more footprint of all this concrete, plastic and, and steel? Yeah, good, good try. Yeah, no, I'm not commenting on that. So, um, okay. Uh, so, uh, how it works is that in, in life cycle assessment, what you want to know is what is the total impact over the life cycle. So, uh, you have to look at what you're going to do, you know, in the project. So, uh, giving some very practical and simple examples. So, if you have a pipe, let's say a sewage pipe, uh, in an area which can be having storm floods, and if it's a heavy concrete pipe, it's going to be massive. And it can be maybe on its own. But then if you have a lighter material pipe, e.g. plastic, then it may have to be anchored with you know, concrete anchors. So uh, you actually have to look at the total impact it has at the as-built stage and also over the life cycle. So if you have a material which allows it to live longer or maybe be more adaptable or more reusable, you know, you can have those impacts considered too. And uh, so um, there's no like... a answer that you can standardize everywhere but for a same context you can standardize the answer of course so if you always do the same thing in a similar let's say geologic similar usage and others yeah there are going to be optimums that you can reach but um, it's not um, completely generalizable and uh, lastly obviously uh, similar to any other industry in the world steel, uh, plastic, and concrete manufacturers, they all work to improve their products. So the product development uh, improvement rate also matters. And uh, pipe elements, they can be left for curing for longer, for example, or plastic manufacturers can use more recycled plastic and uh, steel, um, of course, high, very high recycling rates. So there are there's kind of, let's say, ongoing race for um, everybody to improve as it should. I mean, we cannot have any materials left that are having net carbon emissions in a short mm -hmm. time. So we all have to, everybody has to do better over, over time. You just mentioned one key word, which is recyclable or recycling, because we have been um, hearing a lot. Okay, we can measure at this point from so-called from cradle to gate. So from the point of when the materials are getting out of the manufacturing facility and then, okay, installed in whatever, yeah, whatever it is. 
they will be there for 10, 20, 100 years, whatever is it. But then afterwards, what happens? Or the scope of the analysis of the, that you are doing is until until the project and the uh, products are installed. But then somebody in 50 years, in 100 years, and actually I believe that is a problem, generalized problem in our industry, in about 50 or 100 years, when the end of life for that product or yeah, it comes, what would happen? I mean, then somebody needs to come and pull them out and then how, how do, yeah, how do we go about that? Yeah. So, um, in life cycle assessment, you look at the whole life cycle. Uh, it's possible to make a deviation from that. So, um, for example, to make a simplified calculation and only consider as built phase, but it's not very sensible. Uh, but you can, right? But uh, in generally, in general terms, you should look at the whole life cycle, including end of life, and you should add up the impacts. And uh, how you look at end of life is that um, because it's future looking, you cannot come up with your own vision of the future because that would lead to greenwashing because everybody would come up with way claim that by 2050 everything will be beautiful and in my products case it's going to be even more beautiful than that mm-hmm. so uh so how it works is that you need to use actually approvable things and uh, typically that means statistics so uh you assume that uh what's what's being done today is what's going to be done then it's not like showing any progress but that's also reversing the burden because um you have to make the progress happen before you can achieve that. So with uh, producer responsibility associations, for example, which are able to directly influence, you know, the amount of recycling and uh, that kind of items, um, you can improve the recycling rates for your LCA's end of life as well. But you're not able to just get a free pass by claiming uh, something. And uh, in case of specifically the pipes, the economic case is that they are not often dug up Metal pipes, maybe just for the economic value they have, but so there's that. And uh, um, in many cases, infrastructure pipes may not be recovered unless the same, obviously, route is going to be reused for other types of things, in which case they would. So it um, depends on a bit on the recurrence of the need for construction on the area which you can predict or not. Well, yeah, exactly, and that's that's what I meant. That this is uh, this is a problem or a, or a situation that needs to be well clarified as as the whole construction industry and all the uh, players, and of course, not neither you and me will be here in one hundred years to figure out what's what's going to or how it's going to be, but at least to have well set the rules uh, or but the, but the, to make maybe just to put like very simple rules out there. So I think in a in an urban setting where you are building in a city area. Um, with some density, it's very likely that the area is going to be dug up again because there's going to be another type of infrastructure that's going to be needed, even if it's not the, exactly the same, mm-hmm. maybe cable infrastructure or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so we can assume um, that kind of recurrence, even if, let's say, a certain city will, doesn't continue district heat for a certain area, but cable networks would probably still be needed and water pipes. And um, so you can very easily argue that in an urban scale, but then if you move to infrastructure and you do, for example, some rural area, let's say my summer cottage, I pulled there, you know, water three years ago. Um, not too sure that ever, anybody's going to ever dig that part of the forest up and again. So, I mean, 
it's not gonna have any end of life it's gonna stay there so um just to frame it in very pragmatic way mm, exactly so talk about a bit more about this criteria uh, for the environmental product declarations which is the main outcome actually that that you collaborate with that you, your your platform um, um, issues so which are how do we how do you build or how what is the process to to um, to collect and produce the any given environmental product declaration yeah so environmental product declarations are called EPDs um, after the initials obviously and um, EPDs are third-party verified and practically always published documents about a specific product or range of products uh, and what environmental impacts they have. And these documents, they are made uh, in accordance with European or international standards. And these standards are pretty close to each other, so EN and ISO standards are not that far. And these standards uh, set um, rules on how you need to calculate an EPD. Um, pretty normative rules so um, you have great level of detail and um, once a manufacturer has calculated an EPD for their product let's say you know Uponor has a new pipe which is made with some kind of environmental innovation new material or such um, the calculation is completed but um, the big point of the environmental product declarations is that they get third-party verification so under Uh, in this case, Uponor would have to submit it to uh, either third-party verifier or directly to an EPD program operator who engages a third-party verifier to do the uh, verification, mm -hmm. depending on uh, which is the workflow. And uh, uh, the document would not get published before it's been signed off by a third-party verifier. And uh, if the verifier is not happy, it's not going to go public. So uh, the design principle of these is that environmental information is... Uh, relatively complicated to understand and uh, people would have difficulty judging its quality uh, without it having been independently verified. So this third-party verification is a mandatory step for environmental product declarations and uh, it allows you to trust the data actually. Because what we have seen is overall with the new products because if you have, let's say, in the scenario that you have a product that you are improving, a product that, already, that already existed for a few years, so you kind of have one benchmark. So the new product, which is made with mm, or based on any type of renewable material, okay, you can, to some sort, you have compared. But if you have a product, brand new product that didn't exist before, there's no, there's no previous data. There's no benchmark or point to, to, to refer to that. So then how how the EPD can claim that is more or less so still more or less uh, I mean the, the level of uh, carbon footprint so there should be some historical data at least a minimum historical data well uh, in this case if it's a completely new product you don't claim it's better than your previous product because you didn't have a previous product so you're claiming actually that it's better than an alternative solution so uh In this case, you would have to figure out what is the alternative, let's call it counterfactual, as it mm -hmm. would be referred to, let's say, in more official terms. So what would that be? Uh, how would this, this problem have been solved uh, if this new product wasn't used and available on the market? And you, you need to find out those things, right? 
and uh, it can take a fair amount of time. Uh, usually it comes from your customers because it's not a problem that you have, it's a problem that your customers have that you're solving with the product. So uh, finding out that data from your customer and uh, it can be quite contextualized. So let's say you have something to do with pumping, for example, and uh, pumping is of course fundamentally always a question of flow and uh, gravity and pressure and whatnot. So uh, under what scenarios, for example, does it have this performance improvement? Um, and uh, that kind of matters um, would be needed to achieve a reasonable counterfactual. And if you make comparative statements, you should be very clear about what your counterfactual is because the gain may be different uh, for scenarios A, B, and C. And all this is in the, of course, in the spirit of having uh, this uh, data transparency. And that is that what everybody wants to avoid, of course, the famous greenwashing. And that's why, well, we have this third party verified and uh, uh, EPDs. And that's one of the points that, yeah, it, you, you have it and it's clear. So you, it is not you or, or the manufacturer or the, or the person installing who claims that. Uh, that I am sustainable, whatever, X carbon footprint less. But it's some document, some clear document that says so. And that is that is one of the key benefits of the EPDs. Yeah, that's right. So, and uh, there's multiple layers of uh, scrutiny and control in uh, environmental product declaration. So let's take you take manufacturer who in good faith makes a mistake. They didn't know how some rule was applied. Okay, in EPD process the verifier would very likely catch that mistake, right? And they would tell you, yeah, I cannot sign this off because you have this mistake. You need to go and fix it and send it back again. And uh, if the verifier didn't catch it, and then the data goes to the market because the EPD program operator would not re-scrutinize every EPD to the extent because they need to also rely on their verifiers. But uh, it's going to be a public document. And that's an important thing because all the competitors would be like, what? Why are your numbers like this? I don't understand it. We do broadly same thing or not. And then they would probably complain about it to the EPD program operator. And uh, if the EPD program operator heard this a few times, they would probably ask for these documents from the... Uh, well, I mean, they would ha already have the documents. So they do have the background documents and the notes. And uh, they can mandate a re-verification uh, of the document in question or unpublish it if it's completely ske sketchy. So under uh, these multiple layers of scrutiny, so first, manufacturer being willing to put their own name on it, second, the third-party verifier willing to put their own name on it, and third, EPD program operator willing to put their own name on it. All of these, they add to the level of confidence you can have on these documents. And, you know, not every EPD ever published has been correct, but then they can be withdrawn. And uh, in our case, for example, in one-click LCA, when we work with environmental data for uh, construction sector who use product data, we also do blacklist some data because we see it's a published EPD, but we think there's some problem with it, and uh, we just blacklist them. We don't care because we want the users to be able to use data with confidence, and if we have question marks on data which we can't reasonably resolve, then we just, you know, don't let that go into our database. Yeah, exactly. So, so you now just explain, of course, all the process that it takes to create the end document. So it's really strict. And it's still, if 
as you say, okay, in good faith, okay, well, assuming that is it was an uh, an unwilling mistake, uh, something, some inaccuracy goes. So still, there's a way to, of course, to go back and to to reassure that the system is working correct and the the calculations in the software are correct and the final document is trustable. And it's still, if there's some well thing, there's still a way to 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 send it back. Uh, all these all these documents, and this is something that we have heard from, from mostly from uh, the project managers, the people who are in the planning uh, phase, that they may have different types of documents and still different types of EPDs for if they are choosing one versus the other product. So, and they have two EPDs like, okay, how do I go about this? So they don't look the same. The criteria don't look like the same things that I can really compare one versus the another or is it still anyway is it valid a one-to-one -one comparison of EPDs or how do you see it? Uh, yes and no so uh, EPD standards have changed in the um, last couple of years so uh, since um, 2020 we have a um, second generation of the um, European standards for EPDs it's called EN 15804 mm -hmm. and uh, it has the amendment 2 version ongoing since a couple of years and uh, uh, at that point the calculation and reporting metrics changed so the EPDs done before that and after that are not comparable with each other directly there are there's a way to make them comparable so if you would use them through one click LCA software you can see them uh, in a comparable manner but if you're just looking at the documents they are not so uh, um and uh, then you actually have to look at the standard version. So if you have the same standard, same standard version, uh, there's something really strange if you cannot compare them because they have to report the same numbers with the same standard. I mean, they have to report on the same metrics with the same standard version. So um, okay, if, if, I, if I can recap, yeah. Okay, because if if I can recap, so for for the sake of clarity, uh, if okay, we are evolving all the time. The criteria is, is evolving, as you said, they are, they are changing. An EPD that was issued in, let's say, 2020, under the criteria of 2020, was correct and accurate and valid, but then the criteria kept changing over the next two, three years. So we said that right now, that EPD may or may not be valid anymore. EPDs are valid for five years from publishing, so. Five years. Uh, so uh, we still have valid EPDs, which represent the older generation of standards, but no new EPDs are published under those standards anymore since since uh, sometimes all the new EPDs are published under the new generation of standards. Okay, so that is the way to, at some point, to um, um, let the old ones face away as, as they get old, of course, they are not, they are no longer. So that is the first, the first key for whoever is planning is trying to compare and, and do their own calculations for the for the project. Um, what would you say the person calculating or evaluating a project, which lines or which items in an EPD should be the most important that they should look at? Uh, so in environmental product declarations, the, <clears throat> the names of the environmental impacts are derived from standards. And uh, in the European standards, um, the global warming potential fossil is the one to look at. So we have biogenic uh, impacts and we have 
fossil-based impacts and for biogenic impacts, they are um, often considered to be reverting to the nature in a way. So burning wood is considered uh, zero carbon, even though, of course, it does emit carbon molecules. It's kind of a life. Um, but so uh, we're looking at global warming potential fossil, GVP fossil. And then for sake of comparability and simplicity, I would for product specification for any simple products, definitely, and which are directly comparable. So one-on-one -on -one comparable, like let's say plastic pipes to plastic pipes, I would always recommend to consider only uh, the sum of the impacts at cradle to gate level. So including raw material extraction, raw material transport to manufacturing and raw material manufacturing and packaging. So that would then be uh, what's called A1 to A3 uh, mm -hmm. life cycle phases. So uh, GVP fossil for A1 to A3 is, some, is the number to look at. That represents the fossil fuel derived emissions arising out of the manufacture of the product until it's at the factory gate. And why you don't look at all the other parameters is because if EPD is published, it's not published for you. So, for example, for the transport distance, it's not going to be that transport distance for you. It's a generally the transport distance in a some scenario. And if you're looking at the end of life, if you, for example, have a manufacturers from two different countries which are eligible for your project, their statistics for end-of-life treatment may be different. And it doesn't make any difference for you because in your specific context, just one scenario will be true. So um, keeping it quite simple uh, is important. Then if you get into not like-for-like -like comparisons, but where you consider the example of uh, pipes which are heavier and don't need anchoring and pipes which need anchoring, then you cannot compare anymore at product level. Then you need to compare the whole system. The only way to look at it in such scenario is a system level because anything else is uh, leading to misrepresentation, basically. You mentioned also a moment ago that uh, an, any given, uh, an EPD can be for a specific product, a single individual product, or for a range of products that, well, I guess it's they look like the same or they follow the same process. So how valid are those two? I mean, if I have on one hand a product-specific EPD and on the other it's just the general, the family of product, range of products, so those are not really comparable. I mean, ideally should be product-specific EPD always? Uh, yes and no. So it depends on the product. So um, let's say we take an example of, um, let's take a pipe which has insulation layer and then another pipe around it again. So then you have a product which is non-linear because the insulation layer presumably stays similar thickness, whereas the pipe diameter would grow, let's say, mm -hmm. or or something. So uh, you may not have linear scaling, for example. But then if you consider a monomaterial uh, product like plastic pipe, which is untreated and everything, uh, you may sell it as rolls, which are like, I don't know what's the length, but very long. You may sell it in different sizes and Uh, that kind of thing, and uh, they are actually all very much monomaterial, so you can very simply represent much of that kind of product by mass, because all the impacts are directly correlated to linear, on a linear basis to mass, so it depends on um, what is uh, representative of the product physically. Uh, so if you look at, for example, concrete elements like which are made with uh, prefabrication, 
So mm-hmm. if you have elements which include reinforcement, the reinforcement typically scales non- non-linearly with the product. So there you would actually need to have more specific data always. But if you have a, a product which is monomaterial and uh, many, in many ways simple, mass can be a good proxy for it. All right. So there are many, there are many already limits that we have been discussing to, to, to unpack and I will react to the, to do this, this summary on the, on the, uh, on this episode show notes. Um, if we zoom back a bit, we have all these big goals, mainly by the European Union, which is to make, uh, carbon neutral cities by, is it, was it 20, uh, 2035, I believe? Or 2050. So, how how far do you think we are as as the whole industry to really get there? Okay, different countries have different levels of maturity, of course, but in the Nordics specifically, what would you say? How how far we are? How close we are? At the country level, we are quite far. So, uh, we have um, leaders in the industry to who do broadly and let's say enough. Uh, but we also have many players in the industry who don't have the same pressure from their competitive positioning point of view or from their clients and who don't do nearly enough. So um, the literally the only way to get everybody to do enough uh, is to uh, leaders to keep leading and the regulation to force everybody to catch up. And uh, now um, legislation has taken uh, effect in in Norway. It has taken effect in Finland. It has taken, uh, sorry, not in Finland, but in in, in Sweden and Denmark, in Finland, that's in, in these governments' plans. And uh, But first we need to get the legislation in place and then every two or three years we have to make them tighter. But it's um, we need to get, if we want to get, you know, carbon neutral as a society, it means that nobody can have carbon emissions. It's not the question of the leaders leading, it's like everyone. And uh, we're not... Uh, we're not uh, nearly there in terms of the entire industry moving fast enough. So, and that will need carrot and stick. Uh, yes, that that's what we have been hearing. So, as as long as the legislation is not in place, like well, forcing if you want, yeah, forcing the the different uh, stakeholders to well to move, it will be a bit a bit different, a bit difficult to to do. Um, Panu, anything else that you would like to to add? In the in, for to conclude this conversation, the importance of considering this documentation, the importance of being accurate in the data. Anything, anything else that you would like to add? Well, I mean, uh, you build an infrastructure mostly hundred-year assets, or often, yeah. So uh, you can only get them right once at the design stage. So uh, this whole thing needs to be considered not in procurement stage, but in design stage, because where do you dig? What line are you going to choose? What materials are you going to use? And all that, that determines the impact you're going to have. And there's no going back after that. So once you sign off the contract to somebody to build it, it is going to be what it's going to be, more or less. And uh, so um, we, I would really encourage to think about this 100-year time span as your one, one shot at contributing for the actually achieving these uh, carbon neutral cities goals. And uh, it doesn't also have a any cost extra because uh, if you think about it carefully, these are inputs that don't come for free, like diggers don't come for free, pipes don't come for free. Mm-hmm. Thinking about how to get um, 
get to an optimal and resource-efficient solution is typically best economics you can have and uh, incorporating this into your design targets uh, should be the way to go because it can help you unlock just financial savings as well as very substantial uh, carbon, carbon and other environmental impact savings. Well, there you go. There is it's not only that we are working together to uh, to have a better environment. There's there may be some financial savings, some financial benefits, which of course nobody will refuse to have those. All right. So, Panu, thank you so much for your time today. This has been very insightful, and hopefully our audience will have found this very insightful. And thank you so much, and see you next time, urbanistas. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Urbanista podcast, a production of Upono Infra, the leader in sustainable infrastructure solutions. If you found it interesting, why don't you share it with your colleagues? We all together can move our industry forward.